Section 0 of Home Education Series, Volume 4, Ourselves, Book 1. Self-Knowledge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Home Education Series, Volume 4, Ourselves, Book 1. Self-Knowledge by Charlotte Mason. Preface. Ourselves, Our Souls, and Bodies. From the Book of Common Prayer. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof. From the Book of Zechariah, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We read in the Purgatorio, Canto 1, how Virgil was directed to prepare Dante for his difficult ascent, as given in Longfellow's translation. Go then, and see thou girdest this one about with a smooth rush, and that thou wash his face, so that thou cleanse away all stain therefrom. This little island round about its base, yonder where the billow beats it, doth rushes bear upon its washy ooze. No other plant that putteth forth the leaf, or that doth endurate, can there have life, because it yieldeth not unto the shocks. Then came we down upon the desert shore. There he begirt me as the other pleased. O oh, marvellous! For even as he culled the humble plant, such it sprang up again suddenly, there where he uprooted it. Preface to the Home Education Series The educational outlook is rather misty and depressing, both at home and abroad. That science should be a staple of education, that the teaching of Latin, of modern languages, of mathematics, must be reformed, that nature and handicrafts should be pressed into service for the training of the eye and hand, that boys and girls must learn to write English, and therefore must know something of history and literature, and, on the other hand, that education must be made more technical and utilitarian, these, and such as these, are the cries of expedience with which we take the field. But we have no unifying principle, no definite aim, in fact, no philosophy of education. As a stream can rise no higher than its source, so it is probable that no educational effort can rise above the whole scheme of thought which gives it birth. And perhaps this is the reason of all the fallings from us, vanishings, failures, and disappointments which mark our educational records. Those of us who have spent many years in pursuing the benign and elusive vision of education perceive that her approaches are regulated by a law, and that this law has yet to be evoked. We can discern its outlines, but no more. We know that it is pervasive. There is no part of a child's home life or schoolwork which the law does not penetrate. It is illuminating, too, showing the value, or lack of value, of a thousand systems and expedients. It is not only a light, but a measure, providing a standard whereby all things, small and great, belonging to educational work, must be tested. The law is liberal, taking in whatsoever things are true, honest, and of good report, and offering no limitation or hindrance, save where excess should injure. And the path indicated by the law is continuous and progressive, with no transition stage from the cradle to the grave, except that maturity takes up the regular self-direction to which immaturity has been trained. We shall doubtless find, when we apprehend the law, that certain German thinkers, Kant, Herbart, Lotz, Froebel, are justified, that, as they say, it is necessary to believe in God, 
that, therefore, the knowledge of God is the principal knowledge and the chief end of education. By one more character shall we be able to recognize this perfect law of educational liberty when it shall be made evident. It has been said that the best idea which we can form of absolute truth is that it be able to meet every condition by which it can be tested. This we shall expect of our law, that it shall meet every test of experiment and every test of rational investigation. Not having received the tables of our law, we fall back upon Froebel or upon Herbart, or, if we belong to another school, upon Locke or Spencer. But we are not satisfied. A discontent, is it a divine discontent, is upon us, and assuredly we should hail a workable, effectual philosophy of education as a deliverance from much perplexity. Before this great deliverance comes to us, it is probable that many tentative efforts will be put forth, having more or less of the characters of a philosophy, notably having a central idea, a body of thought with various members working in vital harmony. Such a theory of education, which need not be careful to call itself a system of psychology, must be in harmony with the thought movements of the age, must regard education not as a shut-off compartment, but as being as much a part of life as birth or growth, marriage or work, and it must leave the pupil attached to the world at many points of contact. It is true that educationalists are already eager to establish such contact in several directions, but their efforts rest upon an axiom here and an idea there, and there is no broad unifying basis of thought to support the whole. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and the hope that there may be many tentative efforts towards a philosophy of education and that all of them will bring us nearer to the magnum opus, encourages me to launch one such attempt. The central thought, or rather body of thought, upon which I found, is the somewhat obvious fact that the child is a person with all the possibilities and powers included in personality. Some of the members which develop from this nucleus have been exploited from time to time by educational thinkers and exist vaguely in the general common sense, a notion here, another there. One thesis, which is perhaps new, that education is the science of relations, appears to me to solve the question of a curriculum as showing that the object of education is to put a child in living touch with as much as may be of the life of nature and of thought. Add to this one or two keys to self-knowledge, and the educated youth goes forth with some idea of self-management, with some pursuits, and many vital interests. My excuse for venturing to offer a solution however tentative and passing, to the problem of education, is twofold. For between thirty and forty years, I have labored without pause to establish a working and philosophic theory of education, and in the next place, each article of educational faith I offer has been arrived at by inductive processes, and has, I think, been verified by a long and wide series of experiments. It is, however, with sincere diffidence that I venture to offer the results of this long labor, because I know that in this field there are many laborers far more able and expert than I, the angels who fear to tread, so precarious is the footing. But if only pour encourager les autres, I append a short synopsis of the educational theory advanced in the volumes of the Home Education series. The treatment is not methodic, but incidental. Here a little, there a little, as seemed to me most likely to meet the occasions of parents and teachers. I should add that in the course of a number of years, 
the various essays have been prepared for the use of the Parents' Educational Union in the hope that that society might witness for a more or less coherent body of educational thought. The consequence of truth is great, therefore the judgment of it must not be negligent. Witchcoat. 1. Children are born persons. 2. They are not born either good or bad, but with possibilities for good and evil. 3. The principles of authority on the one hand and obedience on the other are natural, necessary, and fundamental, but... Four, these principles are limited by the respect due to the personality of children, which must not be encroached upon, whether by fear or love, suggestion or influence, or undue play upon any one natural desire. Five, therefore, we are limited to three educational instruments, the atmosphere of environment, the discipline of habit, and the presentation of living ideas. Six, by the saying, education is an atmosphere, it is not meant that the child should be isolated in what may be called a child environment, especially adapted and prepared, but that we should take into account the educational value of his natural home atmosphere, both as regards persons and things, and should let him live freely among his proper conditions. It stultifies a child to bring down his world to the child's level. 7. By education is a discipline, is meant the discipline of habits formed definitely and thoughtfully whether habits of mind or body. Physiologists tell us of the adaptation of brain structure to habitual lines of thought, that is, to our habits. 8. In saying that education is a life, the need of intellectual and moral, as well as of physical sustenance, is implied. The mind feeds on ideas, and therefore, children should have a generous curriculum. 9. But the mind is not a receptacle into which ideas must be dropped, each idea adding to an apperception mass of its like, the theory upon which the Herbartian doctrine of interest rests. 10. On the contrary, a child's mind is no mere sack to hold ideas, but is, rather, if the figure may be allowed, a spiritual organism, with an appetite for all knowledge. This is its proper diet, with which it is prepared to deal, and which it can digest and assimilate as the body does foodstuffs. 11. This difference is not a verbal quibble. The Herbartian doctrine lays the stress of education, the preparation of knowledge in enticing morsels presented in due order, upon the teacher. Children taught upon this principle are in danger of receiving much teaching with little knowledge, and the teacher's axiom is, what a child learns matters less than how he learns it. 12. But believing that the normal child has powers of mind that fit him to deal with all knowledge proper to him, we must give him a full and generous curriculum taking care only that the knowledge offered to him is vital, that is, that facts are not presented without their informing ideas. Out of this conception comes the principle that, 13, education is the science of relations, that is, that a child has natural relations with a vast number of things and thoughts, so we must train him upon physical exercises, nature, handicrafts, science and art, and upon many living books. For we know that our business is not to teach him all about anything, but to help him to make valid as many as may be of those firstborn affinities that fit our new existence to existing things. 14. There are also two secrets of moral and intellectual self-management which should be offered to children. These we may call the way of the will and the way of reason. 15. The way of the will. Children should be taught a to distinguish between I want and I will, 
B. That the way to will effectively is to turn our thoughts from that which we desire but do not will. C. That the best way to turn our thoughts is to think of or do some quite different thing, entertaining or interesting. D. That after a little rest in this way, the will returns to its work with new vigor. This adjunct of the will is familiar to us as diversion, whose office it is to ease us, for a time, from will effort, that we may will again with added power. The use of suggestion, even self-suggestion, as an aid to the will, is to be depreciated, as tending to stultify and stereotype character. It would seem that spontaneity is a condition of development, and that human nature needs the discipline of failure as well as of success. 16. The Way of Reason We should teach children, too, not to lean too confidently onto their own understanding, because the function of reason is to give logical demonstration, a, of mathematical truth, and b, of an initial idea, accepted by the will. In the former case, reason is, perhaps, an infallible guide, but in the second, it is not always a safe one, for, whether that initial idea be right or wrong, reason will confirm it by irrefragable proofs. 17. Therefore, children should be taught, as they become mature enough to understand such teaching, that the chief responsibility which rests on them, as persons, is the acceptance or rejection of initial ideas. To help them in this choice, we should give them principles of conduct and a wide range of knowledge fitted for them. These three principles, 15, 16, and 17, should save children from some of the loose thinking and heedless action which cause most of us to live at a lower level than we need. 18. We should allow no separation to grow up between the intellectual and spiritual life of children, but should teach them that the Divine Spirit has constant access to their spirits and is their continual helper in all the interests, duties, and joys of life. The Home Education Series is so-called, from the title of the first volume, and not as dealing wholly or principally with home as opposed to school education. Preface. Who was it that said, Know thyself, came down from heaven? It is quite true, true as gospel. It came straight to whoever said it first, from the life of Sir Edward Byrne-Jones. Possibly, we fail to give effective moral training based upon Christian principles to young people because our teaching is too scrappy and rests mainly upon appeals to the emotions through tale and song. Inspiring as these are, we may not depend upon them entirely because emotional response is short-lived and the appeal is deadened by repetition. The response of the intellect to coherent and consecutive teaching appears, on the contrary, to be continuous and enduring. Boys and girls, youths and maidens, have as much capacity to apprehend what is presented to their minds as have their elders. And, like their elders, they take great pleasure and interest in an appeal to their understanding which discovers to them the ground plan of human nature, a common possession. The point of view taken in this volume is that all beautiful and noble possibilities are present in everyone, but that each person is subject to assault and hindrance in various ways, of which he should be aware in order that he may watch and pray. Horatory teaching is apt to bore both young people and their elders, but an ordered presentation of the possibilities that lie in human nature and of the risks that attend these can hardly fail to have an enlightening and stimulating effect. This volume is intended as an appeal to the young to make the most of themselves because of the vast possibilities that are in them and of the law of God which constrains them. The teaching in Book 1 is designed for boys and girls under 16. 
That, in book two, should, perhaps, appeal to young people of any age. Possibly, young men and women may welcome an attempt to thrash out some of the problems which must needs perplex them. In the hands of the teachers of elementary schools, the book should give some help in the formation of character. If only half a dozen children in each such school got an idea of what is possible to them and what they should aim at, some elevation of character throughout the nation should be manifest in a single generation. In our moral, as in our intellectual education, we work too entirely upon narrow utilitarian lines. We want the impulse of profounder conceptions. The middle and upper forms of a public school, and those indicated above, fairly represent the classes of readers the author has in view. The two books are published separately in order that each may be put into the hands of the readers for whom it is designed, but because parents and teachers should make a particular study of such moral teaching as they may offer to the young people for whom they are responsible, it seems desirable that the two volumes should form one of the home education series. Questions are appended for the use of more serious students. The more or less casual ordering of young people which falls to their elders might become more purposeful if it were laid down upon some such carefully considered ground plan of human nature as this book attempts to offer. The scheme of thought rests upon intuitive morality, as sanctioned by the authority of revelation. The systems of morality formulated by authoritative writers upon ethics are, perhaps, expanded a little to include latent capacity for every kind of goodness in all normal human beings. Some attempt has been made to define certain limitations of reason, conscience, and the will, the disregard of which is a fertile cause of error in human conduct. What is sometimes described as the imminence of God, the capacity of man for relations with the divine, and the maimed and incomplete character of the life in which these relations are not fulfilled, are touched upon, because these matters belong to a knowledge which is the chief end of man. The allusions and excerpts which illustrate the text have been carefully chosen from sources that fall within everybody's reading, because the object is rather to arrest the attention of the reader and fix it for example, upon the teaching of Scott and Plutarch, than to suggest unknown sources of edification. We are all too well content to let alone that of which we do not already know something. Ambleside, May 1905 A somewhat arbitrary use has been made of certain terms, demon, for example, when such use appeared to lend itself to clearness or force in putting the case. End of Preface End of Section Zero Recording by Olivia.